Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupașcu, one of the hosts for the New Books in East Asian Studies channel. Today, we are here with Dr. Charlotte Eubanks, Associate Professor of Comparative Literature, Japanese, and Asian Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Hello, Dr. Eubanks, and welcome to our channel. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, The Art of Persistence, Akamatsu Toshiko and the Visual Culture of Transworld Japan, published by University of Hawaii Press in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this show, Dr. Lipashku, and I really appreciate the amount of effort and energy that goes into creating these podcasts. So many thanks. Absolutely. My pleasure. And um, let's start by getting to know you and your work better. Um, So by that, I was thinking whether I could ask you to tell us more about how you came to this project and um, what got you interested in Akamatsu Toshiko's work and writing a microhistory of her endeavors. Um, both, you know, as as a work in itself, but also as a way of conceptually dealing with larger phenomena in transworld Japan. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, you know, my earlier work had been on Buddhist stuff in medieval Japan and that type of thing. Um, and so I often get asked, like, how did you end up writing a history of, of 20th century visual culture if you're you know, first projects were in uh, medieval period? And it started when I was going around and interviewing Um, abbots and abbesses uh, and monastics at various temples to see what was in their temple treasure houses in terms of visual art type of stuff. And I was looking in particular for things that might be in there from the medieval period. But the um, uh, Jodo Shinshu or True Pure Land um, denomination uh, in Japan is a fairly activist, uh, left-leaning progressive denomination. And many of their temples also often have a, um, a modern art wing and so there were several times where um, when I was waiting for, you know, meeting with a monastic or something, uh, I would be sort of encouraged to just hang out in the modern art uh, exhibition space and see what was there. And uh, a couple of those exhibitions were on uh, sort of anti-nuclear art and, and they both, two exhibitions in particular, um, had uh, artworks by this woman named Maruki Toshi. Um, and I got really interested in them. I visited the museum uh, that she and her husband founded. Um, and I thought, you know, I'd just write one article on them and I'd be done and I'd go back to writing uh, on medieval Buddhist stuff. But the more I found out about her in particular, um, her name is, is Akamatsu Toshiko. She uh, later, much later in life, uh, took her mother-in-law's last name, Maruki. Uh, but for most of her life, she published under the name of Toshi. Uh, So I just call her Toshi. Um, But at any rate, the more I found out about Toshi and her social and political context, um, the range of her artwork and her life experience, the more I wanted to to tell her story. Um, She's kind of like a a Forrest Gump of 20th Japan. You know, she was like there at all of these key crucial moments. Um, She was in the Japanese mandate in Micronesia when it was under Japanese colonial control in the 30s. She was in Moscow during the Red Purge. Uh, So while leftists were being purged in Tokyo and arrested and beaten up, she was actually in Moscow 
uh, for uh, a year and a half. Um, she was raised in a settler colonial society in northern Japan. She was in Hiroshima less than two weeks after the bombing. She was at the Tokyo war crime tribunals. Like she was just kind of everywhere. And so I was like, if I can tell her story, I can tell the story or a story of 20th century Japan. Um, and I've got a daughter. Uh, she was six when I started writing the book. She's 10 now. <laughs> That's how academic time goes, right? But mm -hmm. we would, I would often read her these night-night stories from a series called Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls. Um, cool. Yeah, it's stories of uh, women who are artists and activists and politicians and educators and architects and engineers. And anyway, I was like, oh my gosh, I should write one of these stories, right? Um, and so I started, uh, you know, conceptualizing this book as a kind of micro history of art and politics in transwar Japan um, by looking at Toshi um, and kind of scaling up from the details of her lived experience to address these, address these really key issues in modern Japanese history, like um, empire, colonialism, violence, gender, and that kind of thing. So that's how I got started. Um, and, you know, as I, as I wrote it, part of it was also kind of, I wanted to tell a story that was hopeful also um, about what it's like to live under and through these kind of structural conditions. Um, and I like microhistory for that reason, because it starts with this assumption of agency, right? Which was kind of just a fancy way of saying that individual people aren't merely expressions of structural conditions like empire and colonization and censorship, but instead they're conscious actors who make choices about how to conduct their day-to-day -day lives. And I find that um, useful and hopeful as an approach to history and, and culture because what it means is that instead of pointing out constantly how oppressive structures, you know, cripple and kill people, which is true, um, we can also tell stories about how people build and maintain or eventually erode, uh, sorry, erode or eventually destroy um, structures like that. So it's kind of, it's a way of, of telling serious history, but telling serious history in a way that enables people to see how they can change it. Um, and how they can can create the kind of worlds in which they want to live. Um, and Toshi was inspiring to me in that regard because, you know, one of the the most common ways of of thinking about 20th century Japan is to think about what happened before 1945 with the end of World War II, and what happened after 1945 or after 1952 when the American occupation ended. And a lot of people um, will will result to this kind of resort to this kind of passive voice, right? So John Dower's history of transwar Japan is a really good one, um, but he um, cites any number of people who use this phrase "damasareta." Uh, we were fooled, right? This idea is that, um, and this was was basically the line that was taken in the Tokyo war crime tribunals, is that the people of Japan were fooled by a small oligarchy or a small cabal of, of governmental and military leaders um, into, uh, they were kind of brainwashed into this nationalist uh, fervor. And that if you could just you know, chop off the head of the snake, right? If you could just get rid of that small oligarchy, then the Japanese people would become this democratic society. 
Um, and in some ways that's true, but it, what in many ways it meant is that people could just say we were fooled and then just not talk about what they did or what had happened um, or what they'd seen in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Um, and I like Toshi because she's like, nah, I, I'm fooled. <laughs> and, and actually none of us none of us were fooled, right? We were doing what we were doing uh, and we need to take responsibility for it and move forward. And so I thought, all right, that's a story that I can, that I can get down with. <laughs> right. And, and she's not afraid to, to, you know, draw or talk about or write things that are uncomfortable and to, to, you know, make her voice heard to, to herself, first of all, and also to, to the others. Um, and, of course, this comes comes later, right, in, in, in the later chapters in the book, but um, it's definitely this uncomfortableness and, and messiness of, of post-war coming to terms with your own position that, um, you know, is, is something that is striking in what she does. So um, I, I was very interested as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, and th- this is a, a through line, right, in the six chapters of, of the book. And, of course, you, you state this very clearly in the introduction and in the afterward. Um, and I have to say the amount of illustrations and the pictures that you have from different archives in the book is amazing. It's a very, very cool thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the, the prose is very clear and it provides an examination of the, um, uh, and I'll quote, quote here, the relationship between art and politics in transwar Japan via microhistory of uh, the, the artist, the author, the activist, right, Akamatsu Toshiko, who lived between 1912 and, and 2000, quite a long life, I would say. And uh, the book is concerned with narrating a social history uh, of art as it understands visual culture, not as an anachronistically foregone conclusion, but as an accretionary result of a series of small, everyday, highly personal decisions, um, right, uh, on, on page three. And then um, as the introduction goes on, right, uh, the, the, the book will offer a bridge between the growing body of scholarship concerning imperial Japan and scholarship focused on the production of post-war memory cultures, right? So the, 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 the post-war uh, reckoning, right, with, with yourself, but also with, with history, and um, in the introduction, aside from describing the main stakes of the book and the methodology, you define persistence as a core concept instrumental in, uh, in understanding what Toshiko's work and visual culture in transwar Japan are. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about um, this concept and the importance it has to Toshi and to major historical moments that contributed to the development of visual culture in Japan. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, in one way, the, the book is really just a story about Toshi um, and a way of kind of telling a, a big history of a large, you know, tumultuous time period by focusing in on a, a single person. Um, but it does have broader, I guess, ambitions um, uh, and stakes. So part of what I was trying to do in the book was to mark out a position, an ethical position called persistence. Um and persistence, as I, as I understand it, from, from having focused and really delved through all of the details that I could find of this woman's life, right? Persistence is this position that I would say is, is located somewhere in this like messy, muddled gray area between complicity and resistance. Um, so, you know, many 
many histories, um, cultural histories, political histories, military histories, and so forth of the Second World War in particular tend to kind of polarize discourse into people who were complicit with the Nazis, for instance, or people who resisted the Nazis, like the Maquis, right, or, or things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a lot more complicated than that, right? It's not like they're just the all bad people who were complicit and the people who are all good and who resisted. You know, that might describe 5% of the population, but the other 95% of us kind of muddle through. Um, and some of us muddle through in ways that are, that are maybe more helpful than others, I guess, right? So persistence, I guess, would share some qualities with something like resilience, right? Just part of persistence is just not disappearing, right? Just continuing to take up space. Um, you know, sometimes just surviving is its own act of resistance. Um, yes. But, you know, unlike resilience or sort of mere survivance, however, um, you know, I was particularly interested in the ways in which Toshi was able to do more than just survive. Um, she was able to, to take action. And in part, she was able to do it because she, it wasn't in such a precarious situation. Um, she herself enjoyed a fair amount of privilege. She herself was, if not from um, a well-to-do family, nevertheless had schooling that put her into close contact with some of the cultural and diplomatic and governmental leaders of her, her time and age. And so I wanted to tell her story because I think it's, it's a story that's not just about one person, but also under this, this structural condition under which we all live, right? I wanted to tell her story because, you know, I guess in many ways we're all dirty, right? We all make compromises with power, especially, you know, after we're 15 or 16, right? Right. <laughs> when we yeah. actually start having, you know, other responsibilities. But, you know, we make compromises of power, we're in one way or another enmeshed within structures of violence from which we benefit. And, you know, rather than be paralyzed by that realization, I think it's important to recognize our privileges and to identify them and then to leverage them whenever we can toward building a more just and equitable world. And so for me, telling Toshi's story was a way of starting to tell a story that honored that gray area between resistance and complicity. Right. Um, and for thinking about, you know, how far someone was willing to go, how far she was willing to go. You know, on the one hand, she's got to preserve her life. She needed to ensure continued liberty of communication and publication exhibition. So she didn't want to get arrested or fined. But, you know, I wanted to think about how that opened into this complex terrain of decision making and compromises that were then compromised again. And that, you know, even under the, the, all of that burden and all of that complication, you know, she still kind of is persistent. She still keeps having what you were calling earlier, those uncomfortable conversations. And she's willing to have those difficult moments of accusation, including moments of self-accusation. Um, and I find that really inspiring. I mean, especially as I, you know, come near 50 and I look back at, at, you know, the, the things that I thought I would be like and the things that I thought I would stand for when I was 10 and 12 and 15 and 16. And now I'm like, you know, I'm a mom and I've got a mortgage and I work for a big university. 
be and like all of these kinds of things. And I'm like, I need, I need to find me a hero that uh, power me through my middle age. You know, <laughs> I think she's, she's that kind of hero, right? She's not like a shiny knight in armor kind of hero. She's like the, the dinged up guy on the back lines. Who's, you know, still making a difference. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's hard, but it's also the networks that she was part of and continued to be part of despite the environment around her or despite war or, you know, despite her dreams of going back to, uh, as you describe in chapter one, um, her dreams of going back to uh, to the South Seas and having an island to herself there and, you know, enabling artists to come from Tokyo. And, you know, I mean, we all have dreams like that to have a little you know, place for ourselves where we can bring friends and, you know, do, you know, write or do art or whatever. So, you know, um, I think the, the networks that uh, surrounded her and she, she sought at some point um, are also part and parcel of, of this persistence and um, enabled it to a certain extent or uh, helped transformed it. So um, I thought that was very important. Um, and of course, you know, if, if we go back to the idea of, uh, you know, the hero or the outstanding, um, outstanding fi- figure, um, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the image of the hero is also constructed in terms of national, uh, goals and in terms of, you know, public image, whereas the, the heroes can, I think the image and the discourse around it could be reinterpreted and redescribed, right? And we, we discover people like Toshi who, you know, could could function uh, for many of us like that. So there's definitely more implications than than we would expect, right? I hope um, so. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> A new kind of hero. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah and um, you know, I think the the amount of details it's it's amazing. I think the the amount of time you spend in archives and everywhere is just astonishing. And um, I just I wanted to ask a little bit about methodology and how the book brings together microhistorical analysis, visual analysis, deep archival research, and interpretation, and so on. So I was curious to hear more about the different types of methodologies uh, and their challenges in doing such work for you. Sure. Um, well, when I when I first started in this project, I knew that I wanted to tell a different history of 20th century Japan. And so if I was going to tell a different history than the one that was readily available, um, I was going to need to dig a lot deeper and I was going to need to to really focus in um, on a particular time, place or person. Um, And so when I when I decided I was going to focus in on a person and that person was going to be Toshi, I knew that archival work was going to be huge, a huge part um, of what was going on. Um, and so I did archival work at uh, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., at the um, Osaka International Children's Library, at the Tokyo International Children's Library, um, at the Maruki Museum, which is about an hour and a quarter outside of Tokyo, at the Prang Archives, at the University of Maryland and the Hornbake Library, um, at the Kotzen Archives at Princeton University, um, and at Toshi's Home Temple. Uh, as well as any number of other branch libraries and things like that. It's pretty much all across Japan. Um, And one of the big challenges of this is um, how to fund that kind of work, right? Um, And so, uh, 
you know, one of the things that I really learned in this book project is the art of the fishing expedition. Right? <laughs> so, you know, you have to write to write grants, um, library and archival grants or, or things like that to do your research. You have to imagine what you might find in a specific archive or library. And you have to weave that in a, into a compelling enough argument for funding. And you have to do all that before you actually have the funding and the chance to go find it um, in the archive. And so um, what I learned was to build in these fishing expeditions. So for instance, you know, if you're going to go present a conference paper in a place near an archive or a library or a temple or a museum that you think you might want to work in later down the line, you know, it's crucial to just take that afternoon, take a few hours here and there and go check it out to lay the groundwork, right? Get a sense of what its holdings are, um, you know, say hello to the curator, say hello to the, you know, the, the temple manager um, or any of that kind of stuff um, so that you can kind of build it in there. And, you know, just having a couple of sources to be able to say, you know, this is a really neat thing I found in this archive and I know there's more because I've made a very quick trip there and your funding agency can help me get back. Right. Um, that was important. Um, you know, another challenge of archival work is it's really disorganized. I mean, some archives are in, are in really well-organized, searchable database kind of form. But, you know, when people say archive, it can mean anything from uh, a library with, um, you know, fully digitized online searchable databases uh, to, um, you know, in many cases, uh, I would be presented with things like old tennis shoe boxes inside of which were letters handwritten letters that weren't, some of them weren't dated and they weren't in any particular order. And it was clear they had been taken out and put back in and shuffled any number of times. Um, I went up in attics. Um, you know, I received bundles of newspaper clippings where the date and the newspaper had been, you know, byline had been cut out. So I couldn't tell where it had come from. <laughs> you know, so like archival work is in some ways like, I mean, it's fun because you get to be like Sherlock Holmes. You're like, yeah, by the paper quality and, you know, <laughs> the typeface, this must be this newspaper, not that one. So, you know, that kind of work was was a lot of fun. Um, and there are these really lovely moments where um, you have these amazing discoveries. So a lot of that um, possibility for amazing discovery is is built on personal connections with staff. Um and just showing up and, and being there and finding ways to participate in the life of the institution. So at the Maruki Museum, for instance, um, I showed up um, and just spent a week there. I just, I was like, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do there for a week, but I'm going to show up. I'm going to go to the museum every day. I'm going to talk to the docents. I'm going to talk to the curators. I'm going to talk to guests. I'm going to look at the guest books. Um, and as it turned out, uh, they were getting ready for their annual sort of museum opening celebration day, uh, anniversary of their opening. And so I also did things like ran a weed whacker and helped cut grass and like, <laughs> uh, you know, that type of stuff. Um, I ended up translating the museum's guidebook um, into English because they were talking about how they were anticipating a lot of school groups um, you know, from Israel, from South Africa, from the United States and Canada, and they didn't have English language materials. So it was through doing those kinds of things um, that I was there. And I was actually sitting there um, 
resting from having used the weed whacker and um, sharing a banana chocolate swirl soft serve <laughs> ice cream <laughs> with another volunteer. When that other volunteer said, oh, by the way, I'm Marukitoshi's niece. And I was wow, like, really? And she <laughs> yeah, you know, we have these handwritten diaries that she kept. Do you want to look at them? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the best payoff for weed whacking I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, and we went over to her house and sure enough, there are these, these handwritten diaries. And she said also, oh, by the way, we have uh, a bunch of these sketches and um, you can look at the sketches, but you might want to take some of them out of the, the protective sleeves because she also occasionally wrote stuff on the back. And I was like, did she? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just that, you know, showing up, taking time, getting to know staff, volunteering, not constantly looking for where the payoff might be, but just kind of being willing to, to, construct the relationships with people. Um, and I think that's also important kind of methodologically because it lets you get the details so that you can build your own timelines. So rather than accepting pre-given temporal demarcations, you can use all the clues that you find to build your own history. Um, so one of the things that I did in preparation for this project was, you know, once I'd gotten thousands of newspaper articles and thousands of sketches and thousands of, of photocopies of handwritten diaries and things like that. I started putting them in order and figuring out how they fit together. And wow. I mean, it, it ended up really shifting, um, you know, by five, 10 years, a lot of the temporal demarcations that I had seen, uh, the periodizations that I'd seen in art history um, and in governmental and military history. So that was, that was really cool. So archival work takes time. A lot of time, microhistory takes time, but it's so worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it also um, clarifies a lot of the, um, the details, but, and, you know, in, in what you mentioned as constructing your own timeline, um, it does provide these these through lines that you can follow with the details that you just discovered to to understand larger contexts such as you know visual culture in Japan or the connection with with Moscow or the connection with Russia or you know um, how uh, internal or you know uh, outside you know kind of external colonization in a way functions and you know what were the, the precursors and what were the the things that came after that so you know, it, it does open up this this huge, huge network of um, of lines that contribute to to the pre-given uh, type of narrative, but also clarifies it or um, sometimes goes against it. Yeah, right? yeah, because people don't live their lives as chunks. Like, okay, now it is 1945, and it's over, and I will become a completely different person who has nothing to do. With, you know, no. people don't live like that. No, no, a fairly consistent life um that moves forward through time and so you're going to carry a lot of that with you um and i think absolutely. history lets you uncover a lot of those continuities yeah absolutely absolutely and um i think the one of the important continuities that we, we see right with chapter one um entitled from northern gate to southern advance envisioning the uh, north-south expansion of colonial japan um right we see this this connection right as you say between the north and the south and um 
uh, also the, the, the coagulation of a visual culture that accompanies closely the material formation of Japan as a colonial and imperial power. Um, and here, Hokkaido represents the successful case study in colonization. And then this model will be reused later for the formation of southern colonies or outer colonies. And um, um, I think this chapter engages with Toshi's childhood memories and her own voyage from the north, right, from her, from her home uh, to Tokyo, to school, and then to Palau, to southern uh, seas. And then I was curious um, about her journeys and how she was trained to see the world through colonial intent. And then beyond it, so this kind of continuity from north to south, herself becoming her own person, um, kind of interacts with her her own education and then transforms herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so she's born, um, just a, a kind of a quick bio sketch to catch us up with where she is in her life. She's born and raised in um, Hokkaido, uh, which is currently the northernmost prefecture of the nation of Japan. Um, but in her grandparents' generation and her parents' generation, to a certain extent, it wasn't a former formal prefecture. It was a, a, a horizon of territorial expansion for Japan. Um, so she was, was raised there. Um, she ended up going to college in Tokyo, to art school in Tokyo. Um, and then after art school, spent a couple of years as a elementary school arts teacher um, before eventually traveling both to Moscow and to Palau. Um, and Palau was then part of the Imperial, uh, sorry, the Japanese mandate in Micronesia. Um, so after the end of World War I, Germany's colonies throughout the world were stripped from it and sort of parceled out to other colonial or would-be colonial powers. And Japan was deemed um, the appropriate colonial power to receive protectorship um, of former German possessions in Micronesia. Um, so in terms of like how she was trained to see the world through colonial intent, and then how she was trained to or learn to see beyond that, um, you know, as a, as a schoolgirl growing up in far Northern uh, Japan in Hokkaido, um, she was raised in a pure land temple. Um, her, her brother, her father, her grandfather, they were, they were hereditary temple heads um, of a Pure Land temple there. And the Pure Land, um, uh, trying to think what the right word in English is, the Pure Land um, uh, sectarian organization um, during the Meiji uh, Revolution, Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, had backed the losing side. So they needed to prove themselves as supporters of the, po of the Meiji government, basically. And the way that they proposed to do this was to relocate um, younger siblings, younger brothers of uh, Pure Land temple families, right, priestly families, from rural places like Shikoku and Kyushu, um, primarily um, southern areas of Japan, rural areas, to relocate them up to Hokkaido. And the idea was that the Pure Land organization would help them build temples, would help them build roads, would help them, um, would you know, help to build schools and basically provide imperial infrastructure that would enable the Meiji government to expand its territorial holdings further and further and further north um, in, in um, Ainu territory, 
basically as far north as they could go until they hit uh, expanding Russian imperial ambitions up near Sakhalin uh, and the islands up that way. So her family were part of this colonial expansion project. Um, schools at the time, uh, and still are in Japan, um, operate under a national curriculum. So one of the things I was interested in doing was to look at the textbooks from uh, the 1910s and early 1920s to see what kinds of readings Toshi and her classmates would have had. Um, and particularly looking at, at geography textbooks, um, which are very clear about, you know, Hokkaido is destined to become part of Japan. It's like a manifest destiny um, type of argument. Um, so she very much through her schooling and through her associations with the, the Pure Land Temple organizations who were part and parcel of expanding Japanese territory, learned to see Hokkaido um, or Ainu lands as a kind of terra nullis, an unoccupied territory um, that was meant to be um, occupied, colonized, and, and naturalized um, by Japanese um, subjects. Um, her father, however, also ran a number of um, after-school study sessions and things like that. Uh, for people. And so I was able to, to look at newspaper articles about what he was teaching at the temple. Uh, and I was interested to find that he also supplemented uh, imperial geography textbooks with things like the study of Esperanto and Russian politics and things like that. So I think there were some early uh, seeds that provided a little bit of dissonance, a little bit of a, of a second opinion, or at least um, some texture and nuance um, that let her know, even as a child, that what she was seeing in textbooks was not necessarily the only way of, of imagining, um, you know, what Hokkaido was supposed to be all about. Uh, when she then went to art school in Tokyo, um, to the Joshi Bijutsin Mongako, the, the girls' art school uh, in Tokyo, she was basically a scholarship student. Um, in many ways, and most of her classmates were there as a finishing school. Most of her classmates, it was an all-girls school, and most of her classmates were the daughters of diplomats and the daughters of military officers, the daughters of governmental officials. And so she was just right in there um, with these girls, right, whose, whose dads were in Manchuria expanding Japanese colonial holdings in Manchuria, or who were um, posted in Micronesia and expanding the colony, colonial holdings there and so forth. So she got, again, a kind of real nationalist dose of education uh, in art school. But she was also there in Tokyo um, just before the first of the Red Purges, where the socialist artists uh, were rounded up. And she seems to have gone to a lot of their exhibitions and stuff before they were um, incarcerated, um, censored, and, and bullied out of, of exhibiting. And so, again, you know, she was kind of aware um, of a different way of, of viewing current politics. Um, but I really think it was her practice of sketchwork that enabled her ultimately to, to develop her own thoughts about what was going on. Um, so if you'd like, I can talk a little bit about 
about her sketch work because that to me is is key. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> I was very ready to say yes. And then I thought, well, but of course, but then I have a question later on, but yes. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Go ahead, please. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, she's, she's really interested in drawing people. Um, she was trained as an oil painter and as a portrait artist. Um, and at the time that was a very kind of nationalistic um, genre uh, in Japan, and that's why she was admitted to art school. She was seen as being promising um, as, a, as a visual artist who could create portraits of military officers and things like that. Um, but the basis for doing an oil portrait was typically a pencil sketch. Uh, and so she discovered that she was um, particularly interested in, in sketching people from life. And so when she went down to um, Micronesia in the late 1930s, she found herself kind of bored. Uh, she didn't want to sketch more Japanese people. She wanted to sketch um, Islanders. Um, and so she got out into the rural areas and basically was trading cigarettes to people, right? She'd be like, I'll give you a couple cigarettes if you'll let me draw a sketch of your chickens. Uh, I'll give you a couple cigarettes if you'll let me draw a sketch of your house with you sitting on the stoop. Um, and she also, you know, after a, a few weeks, decided to really, or uh, sorry, even as she was getting there, she was she was trying to learn um, Palauan language, uh, and later she also learned some Yapese, um, because she wanted to be able to have conversations with people as they were sitting for for drawings, and in the course of those conversations with people, you know, she's drawing um, a woman who she ended up becoming good friends with at one point, and. Uh, the woman is sitting there on her stoop feeding her chickens and Toshi is sketching her and just making conversation about like, you know, the weather and how many chickens she has. And um, the woman bursts into a story and Toshi flips over her sketch and starts writing down the story. And what the woman says, this Islander woman says is, well, yeah, you're the second Japanese person who's asked me how many chickens I have. The last person who asked me was actually the Japanese ferry captain, the one who who steered the, the ferry that brought you to this island. And um, he was telling me that, that I probably didn't even know how, how many chickens I had because islanders are so lazy. Um, and, uh, you know, the big one he is to talk. He walks around with his, um, you know, staff and his, his kind of, um, uh, it's like a, a staff of office kind of thing, not really a whip, not really a staff, but a, a handheld um, stick, really. And she says, well, you know, he's one to talk. He walks around and he he whacks the Islander women on their butts with it um, all the time. Um, and he's a, he's a really violent guy. And Toshi's like, whoa, right? I went from sketching this woman with her chickens about uh, the violent tendencies of Japanese imperial um, workers down here. And so I think it was those conversations that really started to open her eyes to like see what she was in the middle of um, and, and what she, by virtue of being a Japanese citizen and subject um, in colonial territories, what she was embodying and how uncomfortable she felt about that. Um, you know, she's like, I don't, I don't want to be like the guy with the stick who walks around and just hit Islanders. I want to be a different kind of Japanese person. Um, and she started to really pursue that in her sketches. So I think that's how she learned to see around 
some of those very nationalist, militaristic, uh, kind of violent, um, stereotypical ideas of, of who islanders were and who Ainu were and who Chinese were and, and things like that. Absolutely. And um, I think, right, the, 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 the crucial moment when the same, she asked the same question, of, you know, how many chickens do you have? Um, you know, the intentions behind that question were, were not necessarily, you know, um, they, of course, they were not the same as the, the, the captains. And I think that that moment is crucial in understanding the intentions and the, 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 the positioning, right, that she as an artist has as opposed to the, to the captain who, you know, is definitely driven by, by other um, motivations. Um, so, you know, the intentionality there, I think it's, it's very important to kind of, um, remember as we go through, through her life and how she positions herself, despite understanding that she, her question might sound the same, but it does not mean the same thing. So, um, um, and I think in, in, in chapter two, right, this idea is also becomes even more prevalent when, um, you know, um, the chapter being entitled Creating Culture for um, Little Countrymen, the Total Mobilization of Toshi's Micronesian Experience, um, you know, we get to, more, to know more about how Toshi's work was transformed into graphic war material and how she conceptualized literature and art for children as an artist in need for work, but also as an artist with her own set of beliefs and, and convictions that, you know, she, she kind of uh, nurtured until until 1940s and um in reading the chapter i was struck by this idea of little countrymen and toshi's own marshalling of her experience with the islanders and uh, her own talent uh, in sketching um and i wanted to invite you to tell us more about these aspects of the 1940 to 1945 japan and, and of course toshi's positionality in in relation to, to all of this yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is uh, a chapter in which, like like pretty much all the chapters, I'm also kind of trying to open up and take apart uh, some of the preconceived um, ideas of periodization. So this idea of, of little countrymen, um, or shokokumin, as it's said in Japanese, and official policies um, by the government for creating literature and culture for little countrymen. So shokokumin bungaku or shokokumin bunka. Right. Those official policies uh, are kind of demarcated to 1940 to 1945. Um, but what I'm trying to do in the chapter is kind of sketch a lot of the precursors for that. So there were um, early 20th century debates about in Japan as elsewhere in the world about the pedagogical and moral uses of literature for children. Um, so there were proletarian authors who really wanted to move children's literature away from, you know, fantasy and, and temporally remote folklore kind of settings. They wanted to focus more on contemporary conditions and sketches of daily experience. Um, there were also uh, debates and, and ideas about children's literature coming from language theorists. And they really saw children's literature as a place to kind of solidify affective bonds with a national tongue. Right. So what is a standard Japanese was very much um, an item of educational concern at the time. Um, and these two movements kind of came together in the early 1900s, um, where we have, you know, 
uh, children's book artists and authors from all across the political spectrum kind of getting into this idea that together we can help create a Japanese culture. Um, and so they're, they're looking at communitarian language practices and things like that. Like let's empower kids to be able to read and to share stories and, and that type of thing. Um, increasingly the Japanese government in the early 1900s um, began tampering more and more uh, with the children's literature market in order to enforce nationalist and militarist aims. So literature for little countrymen as a set of policies wasn't fully formulated until maybe around 1940, but this shift toward using children's literature for nationalist ends can be traced at least to the 1930s. Um, and, and actually in the chapter, I trace it all the way back to the 1870s when the home ministry and the ministry of education start really um, getting into the fine print of how the publishing industry can work. Um, so what that meant for Toshi was that when she came back from her time in Micronesia, you know, she had this idea, I'm going to sell some sketches, I'm going to sell some oil paintings, and I'm going to basically drop out. I'm going to, I'm going to leave what she saw as an increasingly problematic central Japanese culture. You know, she's like, I'm going to drop out, I'm going to go down to these islands, and I'm just going to be an artist. I'm going to live on an island by myself and, you know, draw paint, make paintings and, and things like that. Um, but of course she had to sell enough uh, of her artwork to be able to buy the island. She'd actually had it priced by some in the military down there in Palau. So she knew how much she needed to raise. Um, but when she, she had her exhibitions in Tokyo to kind of try to sell her artwork, no one was really interested in it except for children's book publishers because they said, here's somebody who can help us with accurate, realistic um, drawings of what Micronesia looks like. And we can couple this artist with an author who will write prose that is gonna be supported by the Ministry of Education and the Home Ministry. And we can make money as publishers by then marketing um, this visual artwork. And, you know, Toshi had to make a decision there, right? She could have gone back to being an elementary school teacher. She could have given up on her arts career. She could have, you know, she could have made a number of different decisions, but the decision she made was, I'm going to sell my artwork, even if it's for these kind of nationalistic, colonial, jingoistic um, publications. Um, I want to be an artist. And that's kind of one of those, those dirty moments of compromise um, that I'm interested in tracing out uh, through the course of the book. So she was like, I can use this liter literature for little countrymen, um, you know, governmental project to support myself as an artist um, and try to get in some, uh, some things between the lines. So it's not a complete, you know, belly roll where she's just going to uh, let the, <laughs> the government have its way with her artwork. You know, one of the things that's really clear is that and that is kind of unusual in artwork of the time is um, her Islander kids that she draws pictures of and their families are relatable and they're beautiful and they're kind and they're compassionate and they're interesting. Um, as, as someone who looks at her artwork, right? She makes it very easy for readers to project themselves onto 
the Islander children who are some of the protagonists um, of her artwork, rather than, for instance, featuring primarily Japanese protagonists in her artwork who interact with Islanders. She centers um, Islander bodies and architectures and domestic spaces and families and things like that. Um, so I think regardless of what the prose say, the pictures have you see these folks as human, um, which I think is, is super important. Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, it creates a tension in the text that um, can be very, very productive, um, you know, when you analyze it. Um, and of course, it can serve, you know, the, the purpose, the initial purpose of children's books or children's literature in a way, right, with, with the illustrations. But it definitely um, builds its own own aesthetic that I'll ask you about in chapter four, but um, later on. But um, you know, it definitely brings this 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 tension out, and um, you know, I think um, the, the the final product it's also um, a bit edited in a way. Um, you do mention uh, you do mention the, these paragraphic um, moments uh, in framing or, you know, in editing, uh, there's also censorship involved. The publishers also, you know, have a, have a thing to say about her work. Um, and they also inscribe a certain ideological work into the graphic art and determine its instrumental value in relation to the nation, in relation to, to the formation of the, um, you know, this kind of uh, common, you know, consciousness. And, um, you know, I was interested to, to, to hear a little bit more about these paragraphic um, elements. Yeah, yeah. So there I'm kind of trying to develop a concept um, that's come up in, in book history and kind of other uh, kinds of scholarship of paratextual, right? So people will say, um, you know, the, what, a, what a text means, what a book means is not just um, captured by the words, um, but is also, right, the, the material form that the book takes is also important. And there are paratextual elements like the quality of the paper, uh, the, the kind of binding that you get, right? So, um, you know, if you've got a, a leather-bound volume with onion skin uh, paper with um, gilded edges and um, in the latter half of it, some of the words printed in red ink and most of the rest printed in black ink, um, anybody who's read um, a, a Bible um, will will immediately be able to recognize this is a material object that looks like a Bible, right? So, so those paratextual elements, the paper and that kind of thing, contribute to the meaning of it. And what censors and legislators in early 1900s Japan realized, um, as many others have come to realize, is that the artwork for children's books, particularly when it's done well, isn't just about illustrating the words, but instead it kind of, it tells its own story and it develops its own narratives and it suggests its own ideas, right? So if the story, for instance, is about how, um, and this is true of, of a couple of the books that Toshi illustrated, that they're basically like the words tell you what different elements can be mined from different islands and what kind of fruits grow there naturally and where you get the oil. It's basically a, a handbook of extraction. <laughs> For children. Toshi's pictures are all about kids, kids playing in their landscape, kids looking at giant oil rigs, kids waving goodbye to their parents as they go to work, right? So her stories are, her pictures are telling their own stories. So and in the late 1930s and early 1940s in Japan, um, what I discovered was that the home ministry was really hard at work 
imagining and legislating and enforcing particular devices that I call paragraphic devices for children's culture. Um, so we see things like in July 1938, um, the Home Ministry Police Affairs Bureau Books Division, <laughs> it's a long time, uh, circulated a series of internal memos um, for the policing of publication. These are the Shupan case, that's the Shidio, and they capture the publishing ethos of the time. So um, the memo from 1938 specifically says that children's publications should be vetted with an eye toward whether or not in 10 years time, the kids who have read those books and looked at those books will have grown up into adolescence with a thorough mastery of Japanese spirit, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, right. who are willing to, and this is a quote, annihilate the self for the sake of country, right? That's, that's what the, the home ministry is interested in children's books doing, right? Are we going to have you know, are the eight-year-olds who read this book going to become 18-year-olds who are willing to annihilate themselves for the sake of the country? And so um, what the home ministry does then is they don't change the artwork so much as frame the artwork. They have a whole bunch of paragraphic um, tools that they use. So they, they mandate the use of certain kind of book wrappers called obi or sashes, you know, which will um, tell you like, this is the book that will teach your children the geography of a new imperial Japan, right? Um, they mandate the inclusion of guides to readers. Um, so each of these children's books opens up with a note, right? Okasama gata e or onisama gata e, right? To the mother, to the older brother or older sister, assuming that even for the youngest of children, someone's going to be reading the stories to these kids, right? And these notes will tell you specifically, like, as you're reading this kid to your child or to your younger brother or sister, right, keep in mind that as a first grader or second grader, they're going to be learning imperial geography. And it's important for them to know, right, the importance, uh, sorry, the, the, the layout of the land. It's important for them to, to go to swim lessons because if they are sent down to the islands, they're going to need to be able to swim. Uh, you know, if they're going to be in the Navy, they're going to need to know all these different kinds of things. And so the, the government was actually paying military figures and governmental figures to write prefaces um, to older brothers and sisters and, and mothers and fathers about how to explain the importance of these children's books to three, four, five and six year olds. Um, so that's what I really unpack in that chapter is, is what's going on in those framing tools. Yeah, and um, also, I think it, it becomes apparent the this kind of temporal positioning that um, you know it's it's meant to happen by the paragraphic framing, um, and you know it's it's definitely you know we're talking about um, children's books and children literature, but also it's this idea of the continuation of the imperial time and the uh, uh, the mand mandate and you know, education with, with this type of purpose. And I think speaking of time and, you know, what it, um, you know, how culture interacts with it, um, I think in chapter three, uh, right, called the Red Shift pre-1945 visual culture, heterochronicity, the proletarian and proletarian Eastern time, um, you, you do bring up the artist's time in Moscow and her accounts of that period and her involvement with uh, post-1945 proletarian visual culture in Japan. 
And um, here again, she um, she sketches people. She goes to museums. She goes to art galleries. She she interacts with people to know, you know, what do they eat? What do they do? How do they speak? And so on. And uh, that that idea, um, right, kind of speaks back to to her later work. But um, I was more interested in how her experience in Russia contributed to her understanding of proletarian visual culture um, and her understanding of Japan's porn post-1945 position in the world, um, you know, also in relation to children's literature, but also her own, right, becoming as a, a person and as a, an artist. Yeah, yeah. It's a, um, it's an interesting shift because, you know, as, I'm, as I was kind of discussing earlier or whatever, like people don't live their lives in these blocks of time, like pre-1945, post-1945 and that type of thing. And so one of the things... Uh, that I was delighted and kind of astounded to find out about Toshi was that she actually had spent um, two periods of time living in Moscow before 1945, right? So one of the the typical ways of of kind of talking about 20th century Japanese visual culture is to say, or in, in artistic culture, political culture more generally, is to say there was a period of of proletarian, socialist, communist, left-leaning cultural production in the 20s and early 30s that was squashed and that then resurged in the 1950s with the end of the occupation. And so what do you do then when you discover that an artist um, has in fact lived in Moscow for 18 months (laughs) in the late 1930s and early 1940s, right? That's mind-boggling. So the way she got there, right, she... Uh, was a nanny uh, and a governess to uh, two different diplomatic families. Um, so the, the Yuhashi family was one of the families, but these were Japanese governor, uh, ja- sorry, Japanese governmental officials and diplomats who were stationed in Moscow um, trying to work out things like um, fishing agreements in, in Sakhalin um, and um, trying to stave off the tripartite agreement between um Russia um, and some of the allied powers and so forth. Um, Nevertheless, you know, here she is in Moscow um, during a time when um, proletarian and leftist leaning authors and artists are being purged and and incarcerated um, in, in Tokyo. And so she's able to go to museums and she's able to interact with artists and she's able to talk with young people and hang out in parks um, and kind of really see a lot of Western art more generally, um, but also see a lot of socialist and proletarian Russian art. Um, And I think what that meant for her, you know, and she kept all these sketch things and and stuff like that. She wasn't able to really exhibit these obviously uh, in Japan when she went back. Uh, So, you know, she wasn't even able to exhibit a picture that had a, a, a sketch of a red guard in it because this was this was deemed um, anti-nationalist uh, at the time. So she kind of held on to a lot of these materials, and I think mostly what that time enabled her to do was to have real quick uptake after 1945, um, with the loss of the war, a really rapid um, pivot for her. Um, so that she could, you know, she had hundreds and hundreds of sketches that she could immediately start exhibiting uh, and showing. Uh, she had all of these materials that she could immediately use for um, post-war children's books, 
and for illustrations of um, policy journals and things like that. Um, so she had a different way of making money um, very quickly uh, and supporting herself. It also meant that she was really aware of certain socialist genres like the wall story or reportage um, and those types of things. And so she was familiar with ways um, and genres uh, that would allow her to rapidly turn her sights onto contemporary situations and developments in Japan. So she does a whole series of sketches of war orphans, um, kids who had, had lost both of their parents and had been dehomed through the fire bombings. Um, she did a lot of sketches of, um, you know, basically the ways in which um, the, the rebuilding uh, of Japan in, in 1946 um, was unequal. Um, she was, you know, doing a lot of sketches very quickly about the condition of uh, industrial workers and of women and of children. So she, she very quickly adapted um, to this new publishing environment because she had all this artwork and all this experience um, from her time in Moscow. And, um, right, so using this, um, this experience, right, we can um, also get to the concept of um, heterochronicity and the way she um, experienced or understood, or we can understand, um, what proletarian Eastern time as opposed to Parisian modernist time um, right, means and how all of this is closely knit in, in Toshio's work and how it's pivotal in bringing, uh, she, she is pivotal in bringing them together. Um, so, you know, of course, we don't have, um, you know, as you mentioned, these very clean, you know, straight lines of, of temporal development and artistic development. Um, but then, you know, I think here in, in, in this chapter, um, it, we understand how this non-straight lines are actually important and come together in, in, in her work. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she, um, I mean, I guess what I'm kind of up to in this chapter is, is uh, sort of a project in decentering European artistic chronologies <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. to build a sense of how aesthetics were developing um, a sense of aesthetics from the ground up. So, you know, rather than view 20th century Japanese art as a form of belated or peripheral, peripheral modernity, right? Playing a catch-up game with Parisian modernism, for instance. Um, I'm really more interested instead in how Toshi's artwork participates um, in and, and helps to develop um, an East-East connection, right? Between um, Russian between Russia and East Asia. Um, and that was primarily constellated around proletarian art and socialist art forms and things like that. Um, so a lot of Russian modernism in the early 1900s, um, you know, a lot of avant-garde artists focused on the Russian East um, and, and, and tried to develop an aesthetics that was speaking to the um, Eastern parts of the Russian empire. Um, and doing so in ways that were conversant with, with proletarian and socialist kind of uh, thought and philosophy. And Japanese modernism, I think, um, was much more deeply engaged with that um, proletarian modernist movement than it was necessarily engaged with a Parisian kind of modernist uh, type of movement. And so I think we can understand what's happening in 20th century Japanese art a lot better if we kind of decenter Paris a little bit more and, and connect Tokyo a little bit more closely with Moscow. So that's kind of what was going on there. 
<laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a, it's a very... Um, I think this question was also, uh, you know, meant to be a, a bit of a segue into, um, you know, a conversation about chapter four, um, you know, entitled Bare Naked Aesthetics, Post-War Art and Toshi's Populist Manifesto, um, that, um, you know, it, it's where we actually see Toshio's theory of art, right, um, namely Bare Naked Aesthetics. And um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Um, I apologize. Um, and um, right, so in this chapter, we see a more vocal uh, Toshio who produces um, right um, a politically committed art or often literally naked uh, persistence, right, as we read on page uh, 119. And, um, you know, she also creates a manifesto um, and, and, you know, practices it. And I was just wondering about the main lines in this manifesto and how are they part and parcel of Japan's immediate post-war visual culture environment? Sure, sure. Well, a big part of what Toshi was interested in, um, you know, August 1945 onward, aside from just surviving and eating, which was difficult enough, um, she was interested in what was called circle culture. Um, and she had seen this active in Moscow. So this is another one of those things that she brought with her and activated very quickly. Um, and she even formed her own circle, um, which was a sort of um, open access arts workshop, a sort of makery space. So, you know, again, most studies of circle culture in post-war Japan start around 1950 or 1952 with the end of the occupation. But here, here again, Toshi was kind of ahead of the curve and was actively engaged in, in shaping this kind of culture, um, you know, half a decade earlier. So by at least May 1946, she and her um, husband, Edie, began hosting um, an early morning sketch club um, at their atelier. Uh, and they kept doing so through at least October 1947. Um, and the, the emphasis on this was learning to draw the human form. Um, and as part of this, everyone took turns posing nude. Uh, so this was a really radical move in 1947 Japan. Um, so painting and posing in the nude was this critical practice for the group uh, for practical reasons, right? To avoid having to pay for a model, but also for philosophical reasons, right? To embody kind of literally this attitude of unshamed nakedness um, and of uh, what, what Toshi often called a raw or bare regard for things as they are, rather than things as they are covered up to look, right? Um, so I was able to, to find out more about this by kind of sleuthing through um, newspaper advertisements and things like that, where she was was calling together people uh, to do this. And, and you know, it started uh, her circle 6.30 in the morning until eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and many of the people who came to the workshop were would-be artists who also held industrial jobs. Um, and so they were on their way walking to the train stations. They would stop in at Toshi and Edie's house for an hour, hour and a half um, in order to draw pictures before they then got on the train to go to work. And what they were interested in doing was um, thinking about how do you strip away all of those years of imperial formation. How do you get back to something that is yourself again? Um, 
And, you know, how do you, you literally kind of rip off the, the cast, the, the, the clothing of fascism, right. And start anew. Um, and so, uh, she was like, okay, well, let's, let's get rid of the clothes literally, and let's have this utterly naked regard for one another. And let's see what we really look like, um, as people. And so she was kind of combining their artistic practice of, of sketches from life with um, what she understood to be kind of a, a Soviet or socialist sense of a return to the bare self um, and a, a rebuilding of culture from a, you know, a naked regard of what other people look like uh, and how they function in the world. Um, and I think she ter- carries that eventually into her own life um, as well. And also into the... Um into the, the nuclear panels, right, that, uh, that she does. And um, I, I guess we can call this period of, of, um, of sketching as almost like a study into, into you know, human, drawing human form and, uh, you know, in different, um, different kind of angles and also realizing, you know, what do we see when, when we look at people in that way? And then, you know, once the... Um, once she and her husband start to engage with, with um, you know, Hiroshima and, you know, people suffering and, and things like that, then um, all this experience comes, comes back and, um, you know, renders a very powerful art. Um, and um, I think, um, right, it's also a moment when, when the self-reflection and kind of positioning one's, uh, one's own um, existence in relation to to the war, right, and culpability starts to come up, and um, you know th- this is uh, present in chapter four, but um, uh, also in chapter five, um, entitled "Art as War Crime: Artistic Wartime Responsibility and the International Military Tribunal for the Far East," um, where um, you know we focus more on the International Military tri- uh, tribu- Tribunal. And Toshio's own presence in the hearings, right? She went there and she she took part in, um, and that translated into writings about that and sketches of the participants. And along with details about her experience, I wanted to ask about the artistic and aesthetic continuities across the war, right? Across her work, and um, of course across Japanese visual culture that that come from this position as art as war crime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. You know, again, one of the things that 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 made me decide really to settle on on Toshi and to really examine her story was the fact that she was consistently massively productive, pretty much from 1930 until at least you know the 1980s, 1990s, um, and so she really just was you know. Colonialism, she was publishing. Imperialism, she was publishing. Post-war socialism, she was publishing. Military tribunals, she was publishing. It didn't matter what it was, she was publishing on it. And so she was going to be somebody who I knew I could kind of trace across a lot of these um, uh, purported divisions, like 1945, 1952, and things like that. Um, And one of the things that I see her engaging in most consistently is this idea of painting the next picture. Um, and it's that idea of painting the next picture that, that allows her to come to terms with Japanese wartime aggression broadly, and then eventually to confront her own uh, culpability in that. So, you know, 
for artists like Toshi who remained active uh, throughout the war years and across, you know, the 1945 divide, there were limited options for moving forward for a period. Um, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East was initially, um, had a very wide possible net it could cast. Um, and there was legitimate concern that not only would military and governmental or political officials be brought forward, but anyone who was or who, who could be seen to have been playing a part in tricking the public or fooling the public could be brought forward on war crime trial, uh, war crime uh, charges. And so that would be publishers, that would be educators, that would be artists. Um, and so one claim for artists was to claim the puppet defense, right? We were fooled too. Um, and to say that they were forced into national or militaristic service against their will. Um, a second possibility was to reflect critically on what they had done um, and to admit a certain amount of culpability. Um, you know, third option was to remain unrepentant. Um, and often the corollary to this was to go into self-imposed exile. Um, and then a fourth option was just to ignore the matter entirely and, and not draw one's attention or anyone's attention to what you'd done uh, from say 1937 to 1945 and just hope that your artwork had been bombed and blown up and wouldn't be uncovered. Um, so Toshi, um, like the vast majority of her peers and of critics since, um, kind of for the longest time went for option four. Like, let's just not talk about what I did. And in fact, she was a leader in trying to, um, trying to bring to trial some, some artists who had been particularly uh, jingoistic and nationalistic people who she felt had really been leaders of the government and military co-optation of the arts. Um, but, you know, she kept sort of painting the next picture and painting the next picture. Um, and her early pictures of um, the Hiroshima bombings were very kind of victim consciousness organized or oriented. And it was only through the process of, you know, she would, she would paint, she would exhibit what she had painted, and then she would listen to what the audience responses were and engage with them critically. And uh, she was exhibiting um, some of the, the nuclear artwork uh, in the United States when someone asked her, you know, well, why don't you paint pictures of what Japanese soldiers did in Nanjing? Why aren't you painting pictures of Japanese aggression? And she's like, that's a good question. <laughs> a really good question. And she's like, okay, I, I need to do that because you're right. Right. I, I need to also um, not, not only paint, you know, the ways in which um, Japanese bodies were injured through this whole thing, but the ways in which Japanese people injured others' bodies. Um, and so she started really kind of uh, doing that. Um, and it was through the process of doing that that she then also started thinking about her own artwork during the 30s and 40s. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's really important the way in which she came to, to understand how violence shaped history and daily life and how she reckoned with it through art. Um, and, you know, more notably in her pieces related to the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima, but also in relation to the rape of Nanjing and, 
you know, other um, other moments. But I think this um, this understanding of violence and in relation to history is not necessarily only these very spectacular moments of, of violence, right? But it's also the day to day type of um, of attitude, right? That um, that artists and you know um, just people in the relations with the others can inflict or refrain from inflicting or kind of getting a, a more critical position. And I think this this idea comes out right in chapter six as art as direct action, Hiroshima and the nuclear panels, um, that draws the attention to art's instrumental yet uncomfortable value in relation to suffering of all types, not just in spectacular moments of violence, but, you know, of all types of suffering. And... Um, I wanted to ask, how can we think of this period in relation to her manifesto, right, that we saw in Chapter 5, and in relation to artistic engagement with war uh, violence in general, right, in Japan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the hardest thing to look at is yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, you know, it took her a long time. It took her into the 1980s to really look back at her own artistic output in the 1930s and 40s um, with the same kind of naked regard um, that she had long advocated. Um, and I think here again, we see the importance of persistence, right? She, she didn't succeed in doing this all at once. And it, it took her a really long time for her to see what she had done. But eventually uh, in the 1980s, she said in an, in an interview uh, that, in fact, she considers herself to have been a war criminal um, because of the children's books that she illustrated in the late 30s and 40s um, that glorified the war and that, you know, would have encouraged presumably any number of, of kids, young men or young boys, to grow up to become soldiers and sailors um, and to, you know, work in the in the imperial uh, war expansion. Um, so, you know, she's like, you know, some kids who, who read my children's books were probably in Nanjing. Uh, they were probably soldiers in China. They probably, um, committed acts of extreme violence, uh, in one way or another. And, you know, in some ways there's a certain amount of hyperbole there, right? Um, you know, to, to draw, a and to illustrate some children's books is, is not the same thing necessarily as to be a general Tojo. But she's using the same word to describe herself. I mean, she was at the, the Tokyo war crime tribunals and she saw Tojo in the docks. She was there the day that he was sentenced. Um, and she is using the same word, Hanse, right? A, a war criminal to describe herself as, she, as was used to describe him. Um, and I think what we can see in her use of that word is her taking really seriously, you know, both the good and the bad that she's accomplished in her life, taking really seriously um, the ways in which small acts of resistance are still resistance and small acts of violence are still violence. Um, and her wanting to kind of come to terms with that and not see it as the end of the story, um, but see it as part of her part of her entire story, um, which takes us back to, to where I started with this idea of persistence, right? This messy, muddled gray area between complicity and resistance where you've got to stay alive. You've got to keep um, active um, 
And what that means is a whole series of compromises. You know, the interviewer who's talking to her when she says, when she finally says, yeah, I consider myself a war criminal says, so why did you, why did you do that work? Why did you paint those pictures? And she says, you know, I was hungry. I was starving. And so her choice was, was like, all right, I'm going to stay alive. I'm going to feed myself. I'm going to keep producing art. Um, and I'm going to do that at a cost. Um, and so, you know, being honest about what that cost is and what that compromise entailed. I think that's a really brave thing to do is, you know, to admit that you're dirty, to admit that you're not perfect is sometimes the most powerful moment of change. Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, it also opens up a lot of conversations, um, some difficult, some less difficult about arts, um, um, you know, in culture's position in relation to, to these periods of, of historical unrest or, you know, just day-to-day life where, you know, violence, structural violence, uh, you know, environmental violence and, you know, um, everything around it is present and, you know, it's, it's hard to engage with it uh, or recognize our own position towards and inside, right, these, these networks. Um, so I think it's, uh, it opens up a very important, timely and complicated conversation, um, you know, that is not necessarily particular to Japan. It's, it's, you know, um, every, um, you know, geographical location has its own share. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's important to, to keep these, these things in mind and, you know, to accept bravery and accept this, this, this persistence as something that is not necessarily, you know, crispy clean, but something that you need to, to work through. Um, and, um, I know we've taken a lot of your time, so, um, you know, I won't keep you longer. I just want to ask, um, you know, about your current projects, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about them. Sure. Sure, sure. I've got a, a few um, going on at the moment. So there are a couple things the, that um, articles that are maybe going to spill out of the book that we've just been talking about. Um, one of the articles or one of the things I'm working on is um, the overlap between ways in which um, Toshi and other artists depicted um, irradiated uh, bodies, the victims of, of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, um, and the in which the artistic techniques they use to present those bodies um, are rooted in artistic techniques that they used to present um, people had, who had been colonized in the 1930s and 40s. Um, I'm wondering if there are some uh, ethnic or racialized aspects to um, the larger Japanese public's difficulty in, um, in accepting irradiated Japanese bodies as Japanese. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about that some. Um, I'd also like to spend a fair amount of time uh, working in the Palau National Archives um, at some point to see what I can uncover of the histories of many of the people who Toshi sketched, because so far I've only been able to tell their, their histories and their stories uh, from her point of view and from her interactions with them. And I want to see if I can um, uncover more of who they were when they weren't talking to her. Um, and then I've got a bunch of projects that are that are focused more on um, Buddhist materials, again, that are kind of thinking about sound studies and um, music in medieval Japan as a way of, of kind of understanding uh, approaches to reading uh, and to, to ritual. So I've kind of, I've split off into a modern and a pre-modern self, I suppose. <laughs> 
Well, that is amazing. And I really look forward to reading more um, of your fascinating work, uh, both in the near and the distant future. Um, It'll take a long time to write. It doesn't matter. Um, But, you know, thank you very much for talking to us today. And, um, you know, I hope, I hope, uh, you know, the next interview will come soon of, for new new projects. Uh, Maybe but, the next uh, interview will be me interviewing you because <laughs> you also have some amazing work. And, and again, I just want to give a special shout out to, to you, Dr. Lupashku, and to everybody else interviews for the New Books Network because what you're doing uh, is an incredible service to the field um, and to the public-facing aspect of the humanities in general. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Have a great afternoon. To you too.